Welcome to the SASH Podcast, the Society for American Soccer History. I hope you can feel their Scottish accents in there when you read the recollection. It's more likely that they use a version of the game that was played at Princeton. In 1995, a woman who called herself Medi Honeyball formed the British Ladies Football Club. They interviewed him about his whole life. I mean, he just told his story in his own word. Welcome to the Society for American Soccer History's SASH session with Brian Bunk, author of From Football to Soccer, the early history of the beautiful game in the United States. This is our first virtual session since last May. It was Zoom fatigue. Uh, so a hearty welcome back to many of you and a warm welcome to those joining us for the first time. Founded in 1993, SASH works to promote, facilitate, and disseminate research into the rich history and heritage of soccer in the United States. You can best find us in two places, on the web at ussoccerhistory.org or on social media. We have Facebook and Twitter accounts. If you'd like to join the society, we encourage you to do so. It's a great value at $20 per year. Uh, please uh, hit that uh, join SASH tab on our website. Uh, please indulge a few quick updates on some happenings since we last met. Zach Bigalke, our secretary, is now ABD, uh, all but dissertation in Penn State's PhD program. His dissertation will examine foreign-born players in international soccer competitions. Our member, Chuck Carlson, who I believe is on the call, is in his first season as club historian for Chicago House AC, a new team in the National Independent Soccer Association. He's done some great work documenting Chicago's rich history on social media uh, so far this season. And of course, we have two monumental new books out since we last met, one which is our subject today, and the other which will be the future of a future SASH session. Our treasurer, George Kiosis, co-edited Soccer Frontiers, uh, The Global Game, uh, in the United States, 1863 to 1913. I'm proud to report that nearly all of the authors are members of our society. In the book's introduction, George's co-editor, Chris Bolzman, argues that American soccer history has long been neglected and has not always been taken seriously. Brian D. Bunk, who appears in that collection, has taken soccer history seriously. And notably, he has taken early soccer history seriously. Bunk is a senior lecturer in the history department at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and teaches courses in world history and the history of sport. He's author of The Ghosts of Passion, Martyrdom, Gender, and the Origins of the Spanish Civil War, numerous academic articles, and the book under discussion today. He has also created the Soccer History USA podcast and as past president, a uh, past uh, treasurer of SASH, he has authored many articles for the Society website. Blurbs on the back of books are great, but I've got something better to share with you today, a text message from a Society member who read Brian's book recently. It reads, and I quote, I told Brian after reading his book that I now know what it must have been like to be in a band in 1967, thinking that I'm recording great music. Then the Beatles released Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. 
from football to soccer is hands down the best formal academic distillation of early U.S. soccer history that I've read, end quote. So in the soccer world, George Best has been referred to as the fifth Beatle. For our purposes today, Brian takes that mantle. So I'll pass it over to him now. He'll kick off the session with a brief slideshow, and then we'll open up the discussion for a question and answer period. Brian. Thanks for uh, everyone for coming and joining the call. And, and thanks, for, uh, thanks to Sash for, for hosting this book talk. And um, um, thanks to Tom for that quote. It's, I, I hope I can live up to that. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure, but um, we'll, we'll see, I guess. But um, yeah, like Tom said, I guess what I wanted to do was just talk a little bit about kind of how I got to this project. Um, it may be a little, I mean, many of you may have heard this or parts of this story before. Um, and then I thought I'd just kind of go through the book and highlight, you know, what the chapters are about and what I was thinking and, and hopefully um, say a little something about people who um, influenced me or helped me, um, you know, make it possible. Okay, so the first thing I wanted to do was talk a little bit about how I got to this point. Um, and like I said, it may be a a little unusual, I think. Uh, I also wanted to put up this um, flyer here from the press so that if anyone hasn't yet purchased, I can't imagine why you all would not have already had a copy, a well-thumbed uh, over copy already. But um, if, if not, there's a 30% discount that you can get by going to the University of Illinois website and buying the book there. The code is S21UIP. And uh, at the end of the talk, I'll put the 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 flyer up again, just in case um, you want to buy the book again after the talk. Um, so just a little bit about how I came to uh, soccer as a uh, as an academic uh, subject, but also kind of as a fan, um, because I was never really a player. I never really played organized soccer, probably until graduate school. And uh, even though I grew up in Minnesota during the time of the kicks and the NASL and even lived for a time in Bloomington where they, where they played their home games, I, I was only kind of vaguely aware of soccer as a, as a major sport or as even as a professional sport. I was much more into hockey uh, as a player and of course as a fan. And I, uh, I have to admit, I would probably still say that hockey is my favorite sport to watch uh, to this day, but Anyway, so that was kind of the way things were all throughout high school and even into college. And then I uh, spent a semester studying abroad in the Republic of Ireland, and I was in Galway on the West Coast. And uh, it was there that I attended probably my first soccer game that I can remember. I may have seen someone, uh, you know, at some other point, but uh, for some reason, and I can't remember much about it, but we went to see the local team, Galway United. Um, and, um, again, I don't remember much about the game itself. Uh, it was wet and muddy and raining, which was pretty much par for the course, uh, in Galway in the, this was in the spring of 1990. And, um, but I did remember the excitement and the, just the, how enthusiastic uh, the crowd was and the singing and, and that sort of thing. So it was really kind of a, a great experience. Um, and a, I guess a first, if, limited introduction to, uh, to European soccer. And since I was in Ireland or the Republic of Ireland in, in 1990, that, that year they of course went to the World Cup and the whole country was just incredibly 
excited about it. And there were all these songs and, you know, merchandise. And I was on, you know, on the radio all the time and all this kind of stuff. And I was already a fan of the Pogues, um, the band, the Irish band, the Pogues. And they put out a song, which um, I thought was great. I still think it's a great song. And again, that sort of just gave me a, again, an insight into the experience of what soccer meant to, um, to a country and, and to people. Um, and then that summer, of course, was the World Cup in Italy. And uh, I remember watching that opening match, Argentina against Cameroon in the hotel room in London and um, by myself. And it was probably, and it's probably still is the greatest you know, soccer match I've ever seen. Um, it was just so um, exciting. And um, again, just the whole pageantry of it all. And that really kind of made me a, an aficionado maybe for the first time. But then I, I finished my studies and um, I became interested in the history of Spain. And I went on to graduate school to study Spanish history. And that meant that I spent a great deal of time in, um, in Spain in particular. And, um, and again, uh, I was exposed to Spanish soccer and um, was able to watch it on TV. And I don't think I went to any matches while I was there at that point. Later, I got to go see Barcelona, um, you know, in the Camp Nou, which was a really great experience as well. But, um, but I still wasn't really interested in it as an academic uh, subject. And so I went on, did my dissertation, um, wrote my dissertation. I had a, a group of friends who were into, you know, many who um, studied European history or were European. Um, and then a bunch of Americans who were interested in soccer. And so throughout the 90s, we had to try to find ways to watch important matches like, you know, begging bars to put the Champions League games on the on the satellite TV. Or I, I remember for um, the Euros in 1996, we we bought a, um, a like a mini satellite dish and then we bought a, a we pooled our money to buy uh, a package so we could watch all the games. And at the end, because we were poor graduate students, we returned the, the satellite dish uh, at the end of the tournament. So uh, I, I was a fan more than I was interested in, in ac academically, I would say at that point um, in, into the nineties. And then I finished uh, my book there, which I don't have a discount code. If you're interested, it's still available at all major outlets. Uh, and I was looking around for something else, uh, a, a next research topic. And I became interested in the Spanish immigrant community in New York City in particular. Through the course of doing research on that community, which hadn't really been well studied at that point, it's still probably not well studied at this point, I found out that they had their own soccer league. The, they had a Spanish-American soccer league in the 1920s, with including a team called uh, FC Barcelona, which I don't think had any connection to the original club. Uh, and so that kind of led me down the path of being interested in, you know, what, what was going on in the rest of the United States uh, in terms of soccer. And then that led me to um, the, the bit, you know, the bits and pieces of work that had been done at that point, you know, it wasn't a, a very well-studied topic, um, but there were, of course, major uh, contributions, Roger Alloway, Colin Joes, David Litterer, uh, Melvin Smith. I read the articles that are, came across Dave's um, American Soccer History Archives and Steve Holroyd's work. And I just became really interested then in 
um, in this topic, which as um, Tom quoted Chris uh, at the beginning, it, it really hadn't been um, very well studied. I see Stephen Apostoloff is on the call. You know, I saw his work, Gabe's dissertation eventually. So uh, I slowly realized that there was a community of people working on this, um, but it was a topic that, that still um, hadn't been really well covered. And so I, I decided to kind of just uh, examine whatever interested me, whatever topics uh, I came across. And um, I wanted to try to come up with a way of communicating that research in a more accessible way. I think there were a lot of people who were interested in this kind of research and maybe not necessarily interested in academic articles in academic journals that are behind paywalls. Uh, and so I came up with the podcast idea, which launched in 2013, I think it was. I just explored topics that interested me. Whatever I kind of caught my eye, I would do some research and produce a show and a post, and, and that's how it went. But after a while, I realized that, that there were limitations to that and that I think it was important that there be something that was maybe less ephemeral. Um, you know, podcasts can come and go, uh, even writing for websites. You just never know when something is going to disappear. Um, and so that made me think I should probably try to write something longer and, um, and you know, and more coherent than my podcast uh, subjects had been up to that point. And so that's how I, I guess I came across the um, the book is I was becoming more and more interested in really in the early, the early period, uh, which again was something that was of interest uh, in England, you know, the origins debate and all sorts of literature produced about um, when football began and the evolution of the rules and things like that. And I was intrigued by that and, um, and thought, well, what's the story in the United States? Is something similar happening? And so I think that's what led me to focus on the on the maybe the earlier period, the 19th century and into the early 20th century. So that's sort of how I got to where, um, you know, the book, uh, I guess that's a long journey, um, but that kind of explains it. So just like quick summaries, I guess, of the chapters or the different sections of the book. Um, and I'll just kind of hit some of the highlights and also show some images. Most of these are not in the book. These are bonus images, I guess, that are related either for one reason or another I couldn't put in the book or um, you know, I didn't even know about in some cases before the book was published. So the first three chapters are what I would call the, maybe the prehistory of soccer in the United States because these are not soccer games. They're not, um, you know, I don't try to make an argument that there's some direct link between these early forms of the sport and later organized soccer in the United States. But I think it is important that, that we recognize that there was this history of soccer-like games, uh, football games that were being played in the United States for, um, for centuries before the codification of, of what we know as association football in the second half of the 19th century. And so I wanted to kind of connect those two things, you know, soccer and the sort of pre-soccer games, because I think at the, you know, at the time, the people didn't really think about it in those terms. Uh, they just played football and, it, and then it gradually evolved over time. And so I wanted to try to at least um, represent that in the book and not try to make a hard, fast distinctions between, um, you know, based on, on rules, I guess. Um, and I was influenced by 
particularly by Tony Collins in England and his, uh, his sort of writing and, and speaking uh, about this particular topic. I think he called these early sort of games the primordial stew out of which soccer and rugby and American football and Australian rules football and all the other variations came about. And so I like that. So I guess the, these first three chapters are sort of the primordial ooze of um, you know, North American football. So chapter one is really about indigenous football in North America. Um, and I try to collect different accounts from around the country, uh, around the United States and even into Canada. Um, not so much again to argue that there's some kind of direct link to be made between these games and later games, but rather to just like I say, collect these, these accounts and try to explain the role that these games played in indigenous cultures uh, across the country. Uh, and, uh, you know, across the continent, I guess, maybe better said, North uh, Canada and the United States. Uh, the schoolboys game is uh, about how football really emerged as a game for young boys in particular, and the impact that that would have on later attitudes towards the sport, as baseball kind of moved beyond this um, notion as a childhood game, football really never gets past that maybe until the end of the 19th century. And so I think in some ways, this attitude that soccer is a game for kids um, is kind of an old notion that dates back um, quite a long time. And then the last one, Manly Games of Celebration and Escape is really about the occasions when men did play football. And, um, and these were kind of special occasions where um, maybe the usual rules and the usual strictures on men's behavior were kind of loosened. So I, I talk about different categories like nostalgia football where men played as a kind of memory of their own school days, uh, holiday football, like on Thanksgiving or Christmas or, um, you know, picnics, benevolent societies and ethnic clubs would have these picnics and they would often include football games, military games, uh, played in camps, and then club football. And this was another area where I was influenced by the literature in, um, in English uh, football history, uh, where there's a the debate about um, small-sided games and the role that they played ultimately in the evolution of association football. And I found that those sorts of games were almost um, non-existent really, and that clubs don't really begin to form until much later. I should also mention the, um, the International Football History Conference. Uh, a lot of this research was originally presented in one form or another at the International Football History Conference uh, put on by Gary James in well, most, I guess it's been in Manchester every time. It was supposed to be in Scotland in 2020. Um, and hopefully it'll be uh, revived. But I mean, everyone I met at those conferences was really great. And it, it was a really warm and welcoming uh, community of scholars and people who were really interested in the history of football. And for someone who was a relative novice uh, at the sport and at the study of the sport, um, it was really, um, you know, really great to have that opportunity. So these photographs here, um, this one up here on the, I guess on the right, I don't know if it's maybe on your left, but this one here is of, um, it's a little bit later, I think it's from the 1920s from the uh, Archives Canada, and it shows uh, Inuit game, um, 
it could be a, a stick and ball game or it could be a kind of a kicking game. Um, but this is a, an image that's not in the book. This is from 1808, a child rearing manual. They often um, described football as an appropriate game for young men to kind of, you know, grow and, um, you know, become proper uh, adult men. Um, this is a good illustration about the challenge sometimes of trying to figure out the exact rules. It looks like obviously this guy is kicking the ball. It kind of looks like the other guy is maybe about to catch it, but um, who knows? Uh, and this one, this picture does appear in the book. It's from the Civil War, uh, probably about 1865, I want to say. Um, and it shows probably one of the earliest football photographs in the world. I think there is a, a photograph from the 1850s that purports to show rugby football, but um, there's not very many anyway that are much older. And it's not a very exciting photograph, um, you know, due to the limitations at the time, it, everybody had to stay as still as possible. So it's, you know, but you can kind of see this guy's about to kick the ball that is being held by this guy here. Initially, I thought that this other guy on the far right um, was preparing maybe to catch it or something. But when I look closely, you can't really see it, but he's actually holding a dog, but the dog has been moving. So it sort of disappeared on the final photograph. So, so the next two chapters are, um, are soccer chapters, I guess we could say. And, um, and the first one is called Steel City Soccer, which is about Pittsburgh. And a couple of things that I wanted to do with the book was to try to make it accessible to non-academics to balance out um, you know, making it a obviously a well-researched and um, a well-researched contribution to the broader historiography on the history of soccer and the history of sport. But I also wanted to try to make it accessible to people who are not necessarily interested in academic histories. And so I wanted to try to include some, you know, concrete stories or some um, almost humanize the, the stories so that people could identify with it and maybe gain something out of it in that way. And so I wanted to try to use case studies either of particular places or, or particular individuals that could illustrate some of the broader themes and topics that I discuss in the chapters. And so the Steel City Soccer um, chapter uses Pittsburgh, which was a, an area that hadn't really been well covered or well documented um, to illustrate some of these broader points about the way that soccer emerged in the 1880s and 1890s and even then after the turn of the 20th century. And so um, a lot of the ideas and themes that I think are common in soccer playing areas around the country appear in Pittsburgh. And so that includes things like the importance of British immigrants, particularly Scots in the organization of these clubs and these teams and these competitions, um, the importance of family members, I often ran across in Pittsburgh multiple family members who played on the same team. Again, most of them were either from originally from Scotland or from um, England. Uh, the role that skilled industrial workers played uh, and how they used soccer as a means to kind of distinguish themselves from other lesser paid working class uh, industrial laborers. Um, Let's see, what else? Um, the sort of rise and fall of the sport in different areas. So in Pittsburgh, there's a huge rise at the end of the 1880s and into the 1890s, and then it almost disappears completely around the turn of the 20th century, and then is revived um, 
and, and thrives up to World War I and, and even afterwards. So that's a, another sort of common theme that we see. The dating might be a little bit different depending on where you go, but that theme is pretty consistent across the country. Um, also the conflicts, uh, I know I've had conversations with people and everyone knows uh, that, um, you know, US, uh, the history of soccer in the US is often one of contention. And that was true in Pittsburgh players fighting with each other on the pitch, teams complaining and disputing uh, calls by referees, uh, complaining about the pitch, teams not showing up, all those things uh, appear in, in Pittsburgh uh, as well. So uh, also gambling, uh, which is something that is sometimes hard to get at in the sources, but uh, again, soccer as a, or Pittsburgh as a kind of case study for these broader themes. Uh, chapter five, Soccer Goes Pro, talks about the pro leagues in 1894, uh, probably a critical moment. Um, I mean, we, you know, we don't want to practice in what ifs, but uh, if that league, if those leagues, either one of them had succeeded, then maybe the history of the sport would be very different. Um, and I thought it, so it, it was worth exploring in detail uh, why, especially the baseball team owners decided to launch a pro league and then uh, and why a rival appeared at the same time, and then ultimately what happened and why they collapsed. Uh, so these photos, none of these are in the book. The two, this one is of a, black, a, a team called Black Diamond FC, which I originally thought was from Washington State, but now I think it uh, was originally uh, founded in Monongahela City uh, and then later became the Monongahela City uh, Football Club. So this is from about 1904, 1905, something like that, maybe a little later. And then this photograph in the center was of, um, the photographer was from McDonald, Pennsylvania, which is again near to Pittsburgh. And McDonald was one of the leading teams in the earliest days of, the, of organized competition in Pittsburgh. And I'm not again sure when, this is probably later in the 1910s. And I'm not sure what team it is, presumably one from McDonald, but Again, another Pittsburgh squad displaying their trophies and their hall of medals there. And then this one is uh, of baseball player, Charlie Abbey. There's another book of, um, another picture of him in the book. And I just included it because he's kind of an absolute unit. And, uh, and we don't have a lot of photographs or any photographs really of the, the professional leagues in 1894. I also thought I'd include this um, URL. You can go to my website, soccerhistoryusa.org and go under the resources tabs. And I, I put together a database of all or as many of the players as I could identify in the two professional leagues. So there's information there about names and birth dates and birthplaces and, um, and any other information that I had about them uh, at the time. And I've been trying to continually update it. So if folks have any um, additional information, I'm, I'm happy to add that to the database. And I couldn't have done that without the help of people like Ed Farnsworth and Steve Holroyd, Gary James, uh, and other folks who helped to contribute information about these different players. Uh, chapters six and seven are about women's soccer. And um, I think, again, I wanted to, I guess, record the, the fact that women had been playing the sport in the United States for almost as long as, uh, as men have. Um, 
indigenous women in some areas played or played variations of kicking games. Uh, and then there are records throughout the 19th century of women playing soccer in the United States. And so uh, again, I wanted to include this in the book as a way of demonstrating that this notion of women's soccer uh, as a kind of a new thing is, is not um, necessarily accurate. And so chapter six is um, describes some of the earlier earliest mentions that we have of women playing football or well, yeah, playing football at that point before the codification of, of soccer. Uh, and then uh, I also spend most of the chapter talking about the first or the earliest documented women's association football game in 1893, December 1893 in San Francisco, and try to again um, humanize the story a little bit by talking about the players as much as I can and, and to sort of highlight their agency in, um, in choosing to play these, uh, these sorts of games. And then chapter seven is about women in soccer in the early 20th century. Uh, there's uh, much of the chapter talks about how as uh, women began attending college in larger numbers at the end of the 19th century, soccer became or, or was encouraged as a sport that was appropriate for women uh, as opposed to football, intercollegiate or American football. And I think, again, this is important because later soccer would sometimes be, um, you know, opponents of the game would criticize it and say it was, uh, you know, a, a, as a women's game or a game for girls or something like that. Um, and so I think in part, maybe that sort of stereotype uh, emerges uh, during this period when it was being promoted as a, as a kind of a feminized alternative to intercollegiate football. And the chapter really focuses on um, two women uh, again, to sort of try to, to add a kind of personal uh, or a, a human face to some of the history, uh, Helen Clark and Doris Clark, Helen Clark from Bridgeport, Connecticut, that's her in the center there. Um, that photo does appear in the book. And she, as far as I know, wasn't really ever a player, um, uh, but was an administrator and a referee. And again, I think one of the contributions, or at least a small contribution of this chapter is to show, uh, again, that women were not just players, but also administrators and referees and coaches, even at a quite early period in the history of the sport. I also think that probably in the broader historiography, uh, we don't spend enough time on uh, administrators and referees uh, and devote most of our attention to teams and players, which would make sense, but uh, so I think that's another way in which this, uh, or another small contribution I hope this chapter could make. And then on the, uh, on the other side here is a photograph which I couldn't include in the book for various reasons, but I believe that is a photograph of Doris Clark um, from her days as an undergraduate at the University of California, Berkeley. Um, so I was happy to find the photograph. It was unfortunate that I couldn't um, use it in the book. And then the, on the right is a cartoon from the 1893 match uh, from the San Francisco Chronicle. And then the last two chapters, uh, the first or the chapter eight, Soccer Goes to War, talks about the impact of the First World War on the sport in the United States. This was an important transitional period. There had been growing momentum through the 19 teens and then the experience of war and the the number of soldiers who had the opportunity to play soccer either in military camps 
in the United States, uh, many in areas that did not have as strong a soccer playing history as other areas. So some areas of the South, for instance, um, although maybe Patrick Sullivan would argue that point, but um, uh, so men had the opportunity to play uh, this game that, or, or watch the game that maybe they hadn't ever seen before. And then perhaps a bit like myself going to Europe and seeing the popularity of the sport and playing the sport and watching the sport also, I think, um, you know, contributed a great deal to uh, the growth of the, of the game in this country. And then ethnic soccer or in this country in the 1920s, which um, Colin Joe's called the golden years of American soccer. The last chapter um, explores Western Massachusetts as a, uh, again, as a case study for the history of the sport. Um, and Western Massachusetts in some ways touches on a lot of the themes of the book. Um, there were um, Native American tribes who lived in the area. I don't know whether they played football, but they were at least linguistically connected to um, to footballing playing uh, groups in the eastern part of Massachusetts and Rhode Island. So it's an, in, entirely possible that they did play. Uh, the area is home to Smith College and Mount Holyoke College, uh, where soccer was a popular pastime on campus in the early part of the 20th century. Soccer uh, began to be played in the late, in late 19th century in the area. And again, it was Scots and, and uh, English immigrants who were the prime movers of those clubs and competitions. And so I wanted to talk about Western Mass as a, as again, as a case study about the limitations of uh, relying on British immigrants primarily for soccer clubs, at least in some areas. So in Holyoke, Massachusetts, which was home to the Falcos in the inaugural season of the American Soccer League, um, it really never became very much a popular sport outside of those particular groups. So among Irish and French Canadian immigrants and even German immigrants, it, it had a limited reach. And I think that uh, was also true in a number of other areas around the country. And then I also wanted to explore the role that industrial firms played in sponsoring soccer clubs and how it can be really difficult to figure out exactly how um, that assistance was implemented. Uh, we know that clubs like Far Alpaca which was a textile manufacturer in Holyoke supported their teams, but um, you know, finding out exactly how and how much is often a difficult task. So these two photographs, uh, again, are not in the book. Um, this one on the right is of well, uh, a match called the Shalu Cup, which was sort of like the city championship of uh, Holyoke for a time there around 1910. Um, this is the Holyoke Public Library. It looks like a few thousand people maybe. Uh, so the Shalu Cup was always very popular in the city. Um, and then this one on the left is of the Inter-Allied Games, which was a, a, a competition organized by the YMCA and the US military, which was an Olympic style competition. The IOC forbid them from using the word Olympics, but it had a bunch of different athletic events, including a soccer tournament that had eight teams, I think it was. Um, it was ultimately won by uh, Czechoslovakia, uh, but it included teams from the US and Canada. And so this is a photograph of one of the, of the match between the United States and Canada. Um, another match, another photograph from this uh, series appears in the book. And I think I saw Christian on the 
recall he was the one who actually found these photographs. So I appreciate that he um, alerted me to their presence at the uh, Archives Canada. I also, um, I, I put this YouTube address, which is a little hard to find, but uh, a few years ago, I, I found the National Archives held a number of films of uh, just small, short, I should say, short film of uh, Americans playing soccer uh, overseas in Germany and in France um, in 1918 and 1919. And so I put together a compilation of those uh, brief little snippets of film and posted them on YouTube. So that's the address. You can also search, I think it's on Tom McCabe's channel and not on the SASH channel for some reason. But if you search Tom McCabe Expeditionary Force, I think it comes up right away. Um, don't just search Tom McCabe, otherwise you come up with like a memorial service, which is a bit disturbing. But um, anyway, so yeah, you can either, you know, take a screenshot of that web address or just search if you want to watch uh, some footage. I was uh, had the privilege of presenting this uh, this footage and, and a brief talk about this chapter at the, um, the SASH conference in 2018. Um, and again, I just want to express my appreciation to all the folks at SASH. Um, it's been a, a real pleasure to, to work with everyone and it's been um, great to have this community of like-minded people who are interested in this, uh, in the history of soccer in the United States. It's a small group, but growing hopefully. Uh, and like I said, I, I couldn't have really written this book or completed this project without their help and, and support. Uh, thanks very much for listening, and I'm happy to answer any questions if I can. That's wonderful, Brian. Thanks so much uh, for joining us and and walking us through, uh, you know, the process uh, and then the chapters. So I'd love to just open up uh, for for any comments, questions. Uh, you can use, you know, the raise hand. I see Gabe Logan uh, with the hand right there. So we'll, we'll go to him. Uh, next, uh, and then Jed O'Brien uh, as well. So, uh, Gabe, first question. Thanks, Tom. Brian, wonderful work. I really enjoyed the read. Excellent research as well. I was especially intrigued with your chapter on uh, early Native America and the indigenous games and your sampling of the uh, indigenous nations. I was wondering if you had samples beyond those that you used in the monograph, or if you just limited that? Did you find any beyond uh, those nations that you wrote about? Thanks. Um, I mean, I tried to write about as many as I could find. Uh, it, football uh, or, you know, those sorts of football style games were not nearly as popular or as prevalent as uh, lacrosse style games. And, and so I tried to write about as many as I could. And, and um, you know, there may be some that just are so little information about or, um, you know, uh, or just I, I couldn't, you know, figure out a way to cram it all in, I guess. I tried to, I tried to include a discussion of almost everything I found, but um, I did tend to focus it on those areas where there was much more descriptive um, information so that I could try to reconstruct at least a little bit of what it might have been like, um, you know, for the players. Jed, you're up next. Uh, thank you, Tom. Um, Brian, fantastic um, talk. Loved it. 
um, from a position of ignorance over here in um, Scotland, I just uh, want to, to see if I, I've got it right. I get the feeling um, that because of the size of the country, particularly the eastern seaboard, is it fair for me to understand that you have a great number of industrial towns and cities, each independently having uh, football development in the 1870s, 80s and 90s. But because of distance, they're not necessarily linked to one another. In a sense, there's whole separate areas of development which are all running in parallel to one another. Yeah, I mean, that's essentially the case. Um, although I think we're finding out that they were a lot more connected than maybe we had previously thought. Uh, I know Ed Farnsworth has been working on a project chronicling intercity matches and, and connections between these different areas. And so um, there was a surprising amount of um, of traveling and of communication between different cities. So even if Chicago and St. Louis and Philadelphia were all, you know, kind of their own separate soccer, soccer communities that evolved and emerged at different times and in different ways, sometimes they, they still often communicated with each other and sometimes traveled fairly long distances to compete against each other. So, yeah, I think basically you're right that, that there are almost like these independent centers that pop up but they they did have maybe a lot more awareness of each other than we we might have previously assumed. And I think that another way is that they were connected through sometimes through especially Scottish societies. So I was doing some research recently on the soccer community in Denver, and there was a guy who was originally from Scotland who was closely associated with the game and with um, organizing clubs and competitions. And one of the things that he uh, I found in his will was he had a, a subscription to the Scottish American, which was a newspaper published out of New York City. So I think there were different ways in which these communities were connected, whether directly through soccer uh, or through these other mechanisms. Um, so I think they, they were mostly independent, but they did have some communication between them. So, Brian, you know, we're in the midst of kind of history wars current day in, in you know, the United States. And you've talked uh, about early in the book kind of everything being football, right? We have these three codes, right? We have association football. We have, you know, rugby. Um, and then we have what becomes collegiate, um, you know, American uh, football. Uh, how did you weigh in on that debate? Um, how troubling was that debate? Uh, how, what would you say, you know, about, you know, these different camps that, that are still kind of contesting the, the origins of, of ball games in the United States? Yeah, to be honest, I, I kind of tried to stay out of it as much as I could. Um, I mean, again, I think a lot of my thinking originally was influenced by the literature on the origins debate in England. And as many of you have probably read, um, a lot of that material can get quite personal and pointed. And uh, I don't know, maybe that's just a difference in academic culture, but, um, uh, but I also thought in some ways, um, 
you know, I, I, I felt like I wanted to put this book out as a kind of, you know, early marker or something and just to get the information out there. And then I think subsequent work and maybe focus in on, on those kinds of questions if, if researchers are interested in them. I just, to be honest, wasn't really that interested in, in that kind of particular question. I didn't have a, you know, a dog in that fight necessarily. Um, and, you know, there's so little information often about these games and the rules that were employed is that it often becomes a question of a lot of speculation and trying to parse out the meaning of, you know, what is it when a, when a source says carry it over the line, does that mean literally they carried the ball over the line or does it mean that the team sort of carried the ball, you know, or propelled the ball over the line or something like that. And I just thought that, um, you know, those sorts of minutia was going to make the book a lot more dull. And, um, and ultimately I thought it was really difficult to, um, and maybe fruitless to try, like I said, to, to parse out the very limited information that we often have about the nature of these games and the rules that were involved. Thank you. Uh, over to Peter Will in Chicago. Thanks. Great presentation, Brian. I guess my question or comment is a little bit along the lines of that, of that, uh, of Tom's. Uh, the 1866 uh, match between Carroll College boys and, and the town boys of Waukesha is uh, referenced as the earliest match under the London Rules of Association football. Do you put any stock in that? Um, is it an outlier, especially considering where it was so far from the East Coast? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I talk about that in the introduction. Uh, I spent a, a quite a bit of time researching that that particular game. It, it turns out, I mean, I have family in Wisconsin that live very close to Waukesha, so I was able to go, um, you know, to the archives at at Carroll College, now Carroll University. And I guess my my position on that is that it's it's possible that they used the association rules, but I think it's more likely that they used the, a version of the game that was played at Princeton um, during the 19th century because the president of Carroll College at the time was a Princeton graduate and, um, and he had been involved in athletics. I didn't find any proof that he had actually played football while he was at Princeton, but his brother was a uh, was on the baseball team, and I, I think he played baseball as well. Um, so I think it's probably more likely that it was either a traditional kind of football rules, or maybe the rules that he brought with him from from Princeton, and not necessarily the association rules. It's entirely possible that they they used the association rules. I just didn't find any evidence that could confirm that. And like I said, I think it's probably more likely that it was a Princeton style game. But again, more evidence, um, you know, could change. I think that's the other point I, I suppose I should stress is that, you know, a lot of, as everyone who's done research on U.S. soccer knows, a lot of our information comes from newspapers. And as more and more newspapers are digitized, that's going to change our understanding. And so I, I fully expect that subsequent researchers will find information that might contradict or, or prove you know, my conclusions to be wrong. Um, but, you know, I, I tried to do the best I could with what information was available. And like I said, I don't, 
I don't have any evidence, you know, as much as a, as a Wisconsin person, I would like that to be the case. I don't, <laughs> I couldn't find anything to confirm it. So, yeah, that's an interesting theory. I hadn't heard that before. Uh, the other theory is that since it was a year after the civil war, it may have been a civil war veteran that brought a copy of the rules back from out East mm -hmm. and may have used that as a guide. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the headmaster or whatever, um, at, you know, he was from Princeton, he was from New Jersey and he had, uh, I think worked as a high school principal for a while in that area. So it's entirely possible that he might've picked up a copy, you know, the Beatle dime guy that was published in New York city in 1866 and he brought it with him. Um, but like I said, I think later, later accounts, uh, I think it was in 19, 1906 or 1910, some of the students who were around at that point, not necessarily those who played the foot, you know, played in those matches, talked about it and they seemed to make a clear distinction between what they were playing and, you know, the, the sort of contemporary versions of the sport. Now, whether that's just intercollegiate football, which by that point was hugely popular, whether they also meant soccer, I don't know. Coincidentally, uh, also at Carroll College in the early 1900s was the first forward pass in American football. Interesting. You know, one thing I didn't include in the book, um, because I, I don't, it's hard to, you know, prove necessarily, but I found in the Carroll College archives, uh, a, I don't know what you'd call it, a, a student publication, or it was like a handwritten um, sort of newspaper report, or I don't, like I said, I, I struggled with the ed editor about, a copy editor about how to, you know, classify this in the bibliography, but it was basically handwritten notes about kind of what was happening at the college. And there was a note about the football games um, in, at, at that period. And from what I could establish, the, um, the editors of this publication or whatever were, were female students. And so I was, I was toying with the idea of including it in the book as an early example of you know, women as sports journalists, but I thought that was maybe a bit of a stretch. So I didn't include it, but. Thank you. Uh, Ed Farnsworth has a question, but he can't uh, speak up at work. So uh, he left it in the chat room, but it's a, a declension uh, question. Um, he says, Brian, what are your thoughts on the decline of soccer development in many areas in the mid to late 1890s, particularly on the East Coast, uh, after the game had been established in, uh, in the 1880s and early 1890s? So it's that, you know, kind of age old question, what's happening in in the mid 1890s uh from your perspective yeah i think primarily it had to do with economic problems in the country uh there was a recession in 1893 i believe and then i think the repercussions of that sort of made their way across the country uh there was also labor strife in a lot of different areas and um in part as a result of the economic issues in the country immigration from um, the British Isles also slowed during that period. So you can kind of see that the high point of British immigration is in the 1880s and 1890s, and then it sort of starts to fall away. And I think those two things are definitely related. Because one thing I had to constantly keep in mind was that um, I was thinking as I was researching the 1890s in particular, I, I kept thinking, well, why aren't other European 
immigrants playing the game? You know, why aren't they interested in in supporting these things? Why is it just the Scots and the English, you know, and some American born? And then I had to remind myself that, of course, it wasn't even that popular of a sport and hadn't even really reached a lot of European countries in the 1890s. And it's really only after the turn of the 20th century that you start to get you know, huge crowds in places like Spain and, and elsewhere. So, I mean, there was obviously soccer being played in Norway and the Netherlands and stuff in the 1890s, but, um, but it wasn't nearly as big of a sport as it is today. Um, so I had to kind of constantly remind myself of that fact. I just wanted to point out, I, I meant to mention him uh, in my uh, intro is Jack Huckle, who's I see is on the call. And um, he was another person as I was just starting out um, be, being interested in this when he was at the Soccer Hall of Fame. He was really generous with his time and very helpful. And again, I don't think I would have been able to complete the project if, uh, if it wasn't for his help and, and support um, through all these years. So I just wanted to shout out um, Jack and his help. We've got another question uh, via the chat from Patrick Sullivan. Uh, our resident Southern soccer expert, um, doing great work in Atlanta and Birmingham, Alabama. He's uh, asking about uh, the role of sport and the military, right? You've done some great work with the, the Army and the YMCA's role during World War I, um, even pushing it further back into the American Civil War. You know, are you aware, uh, Patrick asks, of any other earlier uh, in U.S. military history? I didn't find anything about the, the U.S. military kind of actively supporting it in the ways that you mentioned in terms of buying footballs or providing footballs for the troops um, as they did during the Civil War and then um, really in a much more direct and active way in, um, in World War I. I did find some references to... Um, ball games being played during the Revolutionary War and, and, and a few mentions of football in particular, but um, it's hard to tell whether some of those mentions when they say ball game or ball play, whether they're talking about forms of baseball or cricket or something, or whether it's football. And then when they do talk about actual football, it um, doesn't seem like it's something that was promoted in a top-down way and was just something probably that the the soldiers or the young men took up because it was a pastime that they had enjoyed, you know, as, as children or as young men uh, anyway. So I, I didn't find anything apart from the civil war and world war one. I'm going to ask a quick hit as we wait uh, for maybe someone else to, to raise their hand or, or write a question. But I have, you know, the, the peer review that was sent to uh, the, the press and uh, I described you as an archive hound. What was your best, you know, find or, or, you know, unbelievable find along the way that you stumbled on or you were looking for and found, you know, cause I, I think we all have these moments. I think finding that photograph from the civil war was, was a pretty exciting moment. Um, because like I said, I, I've tried to investigate a little bit further, but, as I say, I think it's one of the oldest football photographs probably in the world. Um, and I think, you know, uncovering the story of the women's, the earliest women's game was also a pretty exciting moment, I think, um, as well. So um, 
I guess those would probably be the two, um, the two biggest fines, I suppose. Um, I think everybody, or you know, most people who've done research into this can attest that anytime you find something that you're looking for or some piece of information um, is a pretty exciting moment. Um, I mentioned Christian before, and he and I had done a bunch of work on the Canadian Inter-Allied Games team. And, um, and I mean, it doesn't appear in the book, obviously, but, and it's uh, on the SASH website and on my website. And it was just a great feeling when trolling through all these Canadian military records from the First World War and to actually find and identify the, who these men were was a pretty exciting moment. And we would exchange direct messages on Twitter about exciting finds that we had discovered in the newspaper or in the personnel records. So I think, um, you know, finding this sort of really important stuff, really important stuff like the Civil War photograph is great, but also just finding those small things where you can actually confirm, you know, who these players on this Canadian team were, was also, you know, I think pretty important and satisfying. We have a question from Ireland. Michael is uh, unmuted himself. Hello, thank you, Chair, and um, and and uh, uh, hello from 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 Dublin, uh, Brian. You, you, I was struck by your um, your engagement with the football community in Galway when you were a study abroad student. Um, and my my question is actually about community. Uh, and one of the things in your storytelling today, um, and the book hasn't arrived just yet, um, but I've been struck in reading reading the story of American soccer about the role of communities and whether they're ethnic or work-based or, or whatever, um, whether they're Spanish or Irish or Scottish or English. Um, and it seems key in the, in the development of soccer, which resonates now in America, about the role of fandom and spectatorship and, and, and the community supporting a football team. Um, how much in your work that I will read, um, um, and I, I note the, the case study about Pittsburgh in particular, um, have community and people coming together uh, for a common purpose, uh, which ends up being playing football. How much of that did you find in, 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 your, in your current research? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a key part of it. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to use both Pittsburgh and Western Massachusetts, you know, and Holyoke uh, as examples is I think that was precisely the role that these clubs and competitions played for these communities, especially as I mentioned, the Scots um, and the English communities, that it was really a way of establishing that sense of community and, and kind of reaffirming their identities as, um, as Scots and, and English um, immigrants, you know, they're in this new place and this different community. And I think it was a way for them to sort of connect in some way with their um, homelands uh, and as a way of distinguishing themselves from other communities within these industrial cities. So um, a lot of the British immigrants tended to be um, more skilled industrial laborers. And so again, the clubs and the competitions were a way of marking themselves off from lower paid 
uh, often other, uh, you know, immigrant industrial workers of other immigrant groups. Um, so I think that was probably one of the motivating factors was, um, was a, an effort to maintain this sense of British identity um, and British community. I mean, Pittsburgh in particular, the, there, you know, there were German immigrants and there were immigrants from other areas, but they were mostly distinct communities. And the soccer playing was really something that the British and, and native born American um, people did and not really other communities or other ethnic groups within the, the community or even within the same factory. Peter, and, and if people don't know, Peter Allegi is uh, a great friend of uh, the society. Uh, this kind of programming has been modeled after the Football Scholars Forum, which he started uh, many years ago. So a true inspiration friend uh, for us here at SASH. Well, thanks, Tom, for the kind words. Great to be the interloper here uh, in the group. And uh, I've enjoyed reading Brian's work. And just as an outsider, not an expert on U.S. soccer, uh, I really learned a lot about ethnicity and class uh, from reading this book. And I'm wondering whether <clears throat> you can reflect a little bit on, on the role of uh, the early game in the country in helping to craft uh, uh, racial identities and, and particularly a kind of new whiteness uh, that seems to be emerging in these particularly Northeastern urban industrial centers with these recent immigrants, especially from uh, Northern and Eastern Europe vis-a-vis -vis, uh, some of the um, communities of color in this country and other previous immigrants from other uh, world regions? Uh, or is the construction of whiteness uh, and its relationship to football something that happens after World War II mainly? Thank you. I mean, that's a great question. I, I'm not sure. I mean, I think generally the, you know, the sport was popular in some communities, but never, um, you know, I'm not sure that it had as much cultural or social clout that it would be a major contributing factor in the way that other pastimes, you know, baseball, for instance, um, might have been. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, our reliance on newspapers means that we don't have a lot of information about when or if or whether people of color played football. Um, so it, it's, it's, yeah, I think that's an area of research. Um, I mean, Ed Farnsworth and I have worked on um, some research about a couple of brothers, African-American brothers who played the game in um, Pawtucket, Rhode Island uh, at, in the 1890s and into the 20th century. And, um, and so it's, it's really a difficult question in the way, it, it just because I, I'm not sure that it had enough clout to, to play a significant role in the in the construction of whiteness during this period, but I mean it it would be interesting to look at it whether or not the I mean soccer was clearly a way for British immigrants to distinguish themselves from other uh, European immigrants, especially Irish, well to a lesser extent Irish, but Southern European immigrants. And so yeah, was there a part of that? involve, you know, kind of racial terms um, is a difficult thing. I mean, I, I have written a little bit about 
sport and race in um, in the 1920s in in New York City, um, more specifically about boxing um, and boxing and to a lesser extent soccer were definitely used, um, you know, by some Spaniards anyway, to kind of draw racial lines between them and and the growing Puerto Rican community in New York City, for instance. So at least in that case, in the 1920s, um, soccer very much was a way of sort of demonstrating Europeanness and whiteness as opposed to Puerto Ricanness, I guess. Um, but whether that happened in the earlier period, I'm not, I can't entirely say. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Thank and as Peter put in the chat on November 11th, uh, Brian will be a guest with the Football Scholars Forum. So uh, there is a link there and uh, you can join again and, and maybe Brian will have, uh, you know, a more evolved answer uh, to that <laughs> if he goes back. Uh, got my homework, work. I guess. Huh? Yeah, yeah, that's your homework. I have, we, it seems we have two more questions. One, I think is, is pretty straightforward and it comes from Chris Bolzman, the co-editor of uh, the other book out uh, this summer, um, The Soccer Frontiers. Brian has a chapter in there. Uh, he was uh, asking uh, about the, the process of getting a contract at, at uh, the University of Illinois Press, which is, uh, you know, if there's a pecking order of, of sporting presses, it's it's right up there at the top. Yeah, I mean, I know, uh, maybe Gabe and Stephen can speak to this too, that, that um, you know, the landscape for publishing a work in U.S. soccer history, I, I'm not sure was, was very... Um, open uh, maybe even as you know 10 years ago or something like that um, and um, I'm not I, I think it really was to be perfectly honest the interest of the editor there um, and I had originally been talking about um, boxing you know that was my original plan was to write a book about boxing Spanish and, and Argentine boxers uh, in the 1920s and then I got sort of sidetracked into soccer um, and I guess we had just sort of kept up um, correspondence. And, um, and then we met at the AHA actually in 2020. That was like my last, I think, trip uh, out of town. Um, and, uh, and yeah, he was just really interested in publishing the book. I think he was interested in expanding the, the University of Illinois Press's sort of sport footprint, if that makes sense. I know they had just published a a book on ice hockey, for instance, and and so I think it fit in in there. Um, and yeah, I mean, he was just very enthusiastic about the project, and and so we went forward with it. It was um, it was great, and I think, like I said, I'm not sure it had it wasn't necessarily me. It was more about his interest in the in the project. David, yes, thank you. Um, first of all, Brian, I I I suppose I've said it like in social media i don't know if i've said it to your face or not uh if this counts as face to face but congratulations on uh on just such an amazing amazing achievement um there's so much i'd like to ask and talk about but i guess one thing that i've been wanting to, to ask about you is in some ways a follow-up to peter's question um on page 187 you say um you talk about failure uh of growth and you say uh, the cause of this failure is not necessarily because soccer was seen as un-American, but rather because it was too closely identified with a single ethnic group, British Protestants. And um, I'm, I'm sure 
some people on this call would want to undermine or deconstruct or devalue that notion of that being uh, a single ethnic group, or maybe it was for a short period of time, and that precedes the kind of emergence of, of ethnic identity that, that Peter seemed to be touching on. But I, to me, what's so, uh, one thing, one of many things that's so valuable about this book is um, the way in which it serves as case studies for how different sporting entities have very different objectives, very different missions. So even politicizing that notion of it being failure, right? The perception that these ethnic groups that put together soccer clubs to represent their interests as if they had some kind of a, an obligation to grow the game for the, for the game's own sake mm-hmm. is not something they would have even cared to take on. But I, I'm wondering too, like trying to connect the dots critically with some of what you're saying, to what degree was, and I think maybe it's like a, a, a critical juncture moment there, and maybe that notion of that being a single ethnic group and the values that they upheld and the role that amateurism played in that, at that kind of critical juncture point, maybe especially 1894. And I wondered if you could talk about maybe the, you know, the, the resistance to ill-gotten gain or the fact that um, you know, maybe your gate receipts would go to the winners being too much like gambling or ill-gotten gain. I just wondered if, if you wanted to speak to those kinds of the ethical values that that community would have held and perhaps the way that was maybe contrary to any missionary sense of growing the game for its own sake. Yeah, I mean, I think there are different periods. I think you're right in the in the 19th century, in the 1890s, um, a lot of the communities like in Pittsburgh, for instance, there was this emphasis on amateurism and kind of maintaining the purity of the game. And I think in contrast, in particular to you know, the professionalism of baseball in, in the United States. Um, and so I think that was an important part of it. I think that was, again, maybe connected back in some way to the prevalence of Scots uh, in, in the organizing, just because, you know, obviously professionalism was later to come in Scotland. And I think it, it, it was a part of the whole package of what football meant. I think that was true around the world. You know, you see similar sorts of things in Brazil and all these other places where these English and and Scottish immigrants want to maintain this kind of upper-class elite notion of what sport and what especially football is about. And they really, um, you know, were disturbed by professionalism, I guess. Um, I think by the 1920s, maybe that changes a little bit. I think in the, the quote that you read was, uh, at least mainly more focused so much on the situation in Holyoke in particular, because you did have a, a pretty large population of Irish immigrants. And so I think the notion of um, Protestantism versus Catholicism was was much more salient in Holyoke in, in this period than it might have been in some other places, uh, because you did have the Irish Uh, You also had a fair number of Germans and then Portuguese uh, in some of the neighboring communities as well. And so I think um, I think that was that was maybe stronger there than it was in some other parts of the country. Um, Yeah, I mean, I guess a responsibility. I think you're right that in the 1890s, a lot of these clubs and individuals would have said that the sport should die out if it you know, lapsed into professionalism and that they didn't feel any responsibility to maintain a, a tarnished vision of what they, you know, what they felt was this sort of pure sport. I think in the 1920s, 
or at least in Holyoke with the Falcos. I mean, you know, it is a professional league and I think they did, at least the backers did want it to succeed and they wanted, you know, the sport to grow and thrive. And so I did, I do think that they felt at least some, um, you know, certainly economic motivation to, to, to have, to grow the game and have it succeed. Um, you know, I was also just reading some stuff about fall river, um, and how, um, how much it meant to them from the perspective of a, of a showcase for the city, you know, that having a successful football team or soccer team was a, a point of a civic pride, um, which I think is also a motivation then to kind of grow the game and to show that fall river was this, you know, kind of the, the hotbed or the, you know, the beating heart of American soccer at the turn of the 20th century was not St. Louis or not, you know, New York or not Chicago, but it was fall river. So. I also just want to say that the, the first paragraph of your concluding chapter, it, it really is, is the statement that sums it up so much in terms of the value of, of soccer history in, in American studies. Um, it's just worth the price of, of the entire book alone. That one paragraph is just so beautifully written. So congrats. Well, thanks. I think I, I sort of threw the, I shouldn't say this maybe, but you know, isn't it always the case that you, the things that you sort of dash off at the last minute are the ones that, that people find the best. So I should try to do all my writing like that. How about we go to Jed and then we'll uh, finish up with Kevin Talek Marston. Uh, thanks, Tom. Uh, in a sense, it, it's sort of a couple of points, because obviously my ears pricked up the minute I heard about amateurism and professionalism, um, which is one of the areas I'm um, looking at at the moment. I, I'd make a point that from my my opinion on, on what I'm seeing in the UK in the 1870s and 80s, yes, there's amateurism, yes, Scotland goes professional in 1893, England in 1885 under very specific circumstances. But of course, the Scotch professor goes to England specifically to be paid from the 1870s. But I mean, no disrespect to anyone that's been to East Lancashire and Darwin, Accrington, Burnley, Blackburn, you're going to go there because you're paid. Right. You're not going there to um, to enjoy yourself in that sense. They were they were mill towns. Um, and so I'm wondering if that acceptance of being paid actually crossed the Atlantic with a lot of people. People misunderstand because Queen's Park were amateur and they were the biggest, um, the most influential team of all time in, in my book. Um, I think it sometimes gets skewed. And a, and a slightly more modern comment, um, you're talking about Fall River and it being, you know, part of a PR thing. Well, the same thing happened here 20 years ago when the new town of Livingston, 20 miles to the west of Edinburgh, they basically stole Medibank Thistle and set it up again and called it Livingston. Because otherwise, how would it get mentioned on the on the telly or the radio? You can guarantee if you've got a football team, it gets mentioned five or six times on a Saturday. That's why people like Hartlepool wanted to keep their their club and keep it in the league because it's the only time places like that got any PR. Um, yeah, I mean the question about the 
did across the Atlantic. I mean, I'm at least in the 1890s, I don't know, it would have been a really risky thing to uh, across the Atlantic, assuming you were going to make enough money playing, you know, soccer in the United States. I think they did a lot of Scottish immigrants did come for other kinds of jobs and then were happy to take payments of various sorts to also play football. Um, I'm thinking about a group of brothers, McKendrick brothers, who ended up in first in the Twin Cities in Minneapolis and then in Detroit. And then they later played for the um, Washington, no, Baltimore in the, um, in the professional leagues in 1894. And so they were clearly, I mean, they were stone cutters uh, by trade, but they were clearly open to, you know, being professionals, um, being paid to play soccer, um, either overtly as part of those professional leagues in 1894 or through other means. They're sort of hints that they were getting payments. But again, when we since we rely so much on newspapers, um, you know, they weren't reporting those sorts of payments, whether they were under the table or over the table. I mean, I found in Holyoke, um, even after the 20th century, that the, the firms would give jobs to play it to people who, who also played. Now, whether that was a, they did that you know, which came first, I don't know. It's not in the in the archives. So I think you're right that a lot of Scottish immigrants came over here and then discovered that, hey, we could make money doing this as well, um, you know, in addition to our day jobs. Kevin, why don't you uh, finish this up and then we'll give uh, final comments to uh, Brian before we, we say goodbye. Thanks, Tom. Well, Brian, thank you so much for talk today. Just a quick question. Well, two-part question. One, I was curious from a methodological point of view, your sources, etc. what was the most challenging source problem that you had anything to do from that standpoint? And if there was anything you'd do differently, you know, I think it's interesting whenever people are working on that project, you know, what would we do differently after, after you finished a project do differently? And then more from a sort of synthesis macro we have these two impressive books you know one monograph yours and then the edit collection that come out in the last months and i'm curious for your thoughts on you know what is if you step back from all of that now you've you've just written this monograph and then we've got the edit collection what are the big themes that macro themes that you see coming out of those two books yeah i mean your first question i think I mean, I think the the biggest challenge is, I mean, probably, as you know, is dealing with almost exclusively newspaper sources and how um, how infuriatingly vague or, um, you know, incomplete or inconsistent or just flat out wrong they can be um, and trying to piece together enough information to to put together a, a compelling narrative and even a complete storyline sometimes. I mean, I, you know, just trying to figure out who won uh, a league or who won a cup uh, in a certain year often took an enormous amount of research. Um, and even then it often, that answer was not, not available. I think that was probably the biggest challenge. I think uh, the other thing that I, I tended to notice was that, I mean, I didn't, I guess I didn't think 
I didn't know if there would be archival sources beyond newspapers, but I was struck by just how little information there is. Even when you go and look like I, I looked at the far alpaca company records such as they exist and there's zero mention of the soccer team whatsoever. Um, and I think just that fact, it's the, the almost complete lack of any kind of institutional sources for clubs or competitions um, is probably the greatest challenge. I mean, I, I, you know, Peter's not here anymore, but he was, I think it was, was it this summer or last year, he was gonna teach a course and he wanted um, information about primary sources for US soccer history that he could maybe use in that class. And, and a couple of us put together a bunch of resources for him. And, and I thought, well, these are not all that great. You know, there's just not that much, you know, the Spalding guides and some other stuff and he said, wow, I'm amazed at how much information you guys have for this history. So I guess it's all relative that um, compared to Africa, where he his research lies, you know, maybe we have a wealth of information. But compared to, you know, say, England or, or um, other areas, it, it, it's, it's just a challenge to find anything outside of newspapers, I guess. Your other question about what I would do differently. I don't know. I ha maybe I haven't had enough time to reflect on that so much. I mean, I spent a lot of time, my wife will attest that she had to hear constant discussions in my own mind, really out loud about how to organize this and what to include and what to exclude. And, um, you know, I think at a certain point, I arrived at this uh, organization and this setup, and I felt like that was kind of enough. Um, I mean, there, I probably could have expanded it to include other areas, other topics. Um, but I guess, yeah, I, I don't know. I haven't really, I haven't uh, had enough time perhaps to reflect on that other larger question. So what, why don't we end with, with the third question that Kevin had in oh, there, sorry. you know, yeah. like, you know, looking at your monograph and then the collection uh, that George and, and Chris, you know, just put out, what are some of the, you know, big ticket themes, you know, some of the things, trends that, that jump out at you, you know, having, having seen both. Yeah. I mean, I haven't finished reading the, the collection yet. Um, I've only read a couple of um, contributions. I mean, I do think some of the questions that people have brought up here are, are themes that, that emerge and that maybe themes for subsequent research, like Peter talking about um, you know, the, the relationship between the sport and, and developing notions of whiteness. I think ideas about community identity, I think, are important. I think more work, if possible, on kind of the economic side of it would be a, a topic maybe that hasn't really, maybe that's impossible given our sources, but I think that's an area that, that might be worth looking at. I mean, I'm excited for Ed's, uh, Ed's project about the kind of interconnectedness of these various communities. I've, I've always in the past described U.S. soccer as this sort of patchwork quilt of all these different isolate, almost like islands, you know, isolated from one another. And I think uh, Ed's work has shown that they were a fact connected in, you know, much more closely in uh, at a much earlier time than maybe we had anticipated before. So I think that's a theme that would be really, is going to be really interesting going forward is just how, you know, our sense of, of that, like islands separated from each other is maybe not as, as accurate or not doesn't tell the whole story in a way that I think a lot of us might have thought.
and then I mean, and then of course other kinds of research uh, into different groups. You know, are, are there are can we find more African American players, for instance, or you know other um, you know Spanish speaking players? You know, when does when do those communities really begin to play the game? I think those are other areas, and of course women's football as well. I mentioned that in the book that you know there could be more detailed studies in some places um, in California or in in the Northeast that might um, provide a lot more detail than I could get in the in this book. That's a great way to go out is the uh, final whistle, no added time. Just want to thank you know Brian once again. Just an amazing, you know, contribution to American soccer history, a, a foundational uh, text. So uh, a virtual round of applause and congratulations uh, to Brian. Uh, thanks for joining the community. Uh, please stay an active and enthusiastic member and uh, we'll see you next time.